If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. This month marked the 75th anniversary of the founding of Britain's National Health Service, which has since become a pillar of British society. To mark the anniversary, Matt Elton put some of your questions on the history of the NHS to historian Andrew Seaton, author of Our NHS, A History of Britain's Best-Loved Institution. So, Andrew, I thought it would be okay to kick off with a question from Sandy.Sisley1 on Instagram, who asks, who provided healthcare before the NHS and was it accessible? So I think the the first point to make with this is that there was healthcare before the NHS. We tend to think now that there was this kind of barren wasteland before 1948. There wasn't any healthcare, but in fact there was. Um, and the NHS in many ways built on some parts of the healthcare system that existed before. But that is to say that the healthcare system that existed, say, in the 1920s, the 1930s, was a lot more mixed in where the money came from and how it operated than what followed after 1948. And it came from a mix of government, voluntary, and private sources. 
So let's just take general practice and hospital care. So general practice, a way that millions of people accessed healthcare in the 1920s and the 1930s was through the national insurance system, which was set up by the Liberals uh, in the Edwardian period. And this gave you, if you earned under a certain amount of money and you paid in a certain amount of your wages and your employer matched that and the government also put some money into a central fund, this gave you access to what was known as a panel doctor. The problem with that system is that it didn't cover uh, what was known as your dependents. As most people who were out in the workplace at this point were men, their dependents, wives and children would not gain access to healthcare through that panel system. So those were kind of some of the gaps that that measure uh, left behind. There was also stigma attached to it, uh, being a panel patient as opposed to a private patient. Some local GP surgeries would even place you in a separate waiting room if you were a, a panel patient or a private patient. Hospitals similarly were quite mixed. Uh, The two types of hospitals that you'd find in the 1920s and the 1930s would be municipal hospitals and voluntary hospitals. So municipal hospitals were run, as the name suggests, by local councils. These were very, very often old poor law institutions. So they were all very old Victorian institutions that would sometimes be attached to a workhouse even. And, you know, they had all of the connotations that suggested. Many councils tried to improve them. Uh, Some of them did really great work. Uh, In London, for example, under the London County Council, they provided the most municipal hospital beds in the world in the 1930s. But other councils really struggled to improve them. And they, again, carried all sorts of social stigma about going into what was an old poor law institution. The voluntary hospitals were a real range. They could range from prestigious teaching hospitals. We think about guys in London, these kinds of places. Uh, But then we also have uh, local cottage hospitals, which might be on the edge of, say, a market town or a village. These kinds of places were often struggling for money in the 1920s and the 1930s as they were funded by donations, fundraising, legacies, but then also direct payments by patients. So this is all to say that there was this kind of mix of uh, government, voluntary, private money in that health system. It had a lot of gaps that reformers criticised, but it was by no means a failure. Um, It wasn't, therefore, it wasn't this kind of thing that was crumbling, as indeed the proponents of the NHS suggested in justifying their own plans. It wasn't inevitable that the NHS would follow. So that leads nicely on to um, Susie1340 on Twitter asks, when was the NHS created? Perhaps we can expand that outward to talk about some of the key forces and figures that helped it come into creation, I suppose. Yeah, so the NHS was created after the Second World War by the Labour government of Clement Attlee and stewarded in by the Labour Minister of Health and Housing, the great charismatic kind of socialist figure from the valleys of of South Wales and Iron Bevan. It was legislated in 1946 in England and Wales, and then near-identical legislation followed in in Scotland and and Northern Ireland from that point. 
It didn't spring out of the ground. There were lots of arguments and debates about what healthcare should look like, stretching all the way back from the very start of the 20th century, when you see the first use of National Health Service, I think, in about 1910. So it's a very long debate that it builds from. But whereas, you know, the NHS, where it differed from the the kind of earlier plans and proposals, was its degree of state involvement. So lots of people put forward proposals for a national health service, particularly during the war. So the Conservative Party, for example, in 1948, put out a white paper that called for a national health service. But that proposal, if you read it, it wouldn't have led to the National Health Service as we know it today. It would indeed have been comprehensive and it would have been free at the point of use. But the hospitals, for example, would not have been nationalised. They would not have been taken over by the government. They would have been left and given to the hands of local councils. Similarly, the NHS legislation, as it was brought in by the Labour government, gave a duty for local councils to submit proposals for health centres. Again, that was not part of the Conservative Party's plan in the late 1940s. So you can see there, there are these dimensions of the Labour proposals as they come about in the legislation and they eventually get enacted on the 5th of July 1948 that were distinctive. A similar question we've had is, would there have been an NHS if there wasn't a Second World War? This is a really... Good question. And I think it really speaks to a lot of debate among historians about what did the Second World War do to politics, to social change. An older school of historiography argued that you wouldn't have had a Labour government, you wouldn't have had uh, a universal welfare state if it hadn't been for the Second World War. And they premised those arguments on the spirit of fair shares for all, uh, the shared experience of the blitz, rationing, these kinds of things, evacuation, that it brought people together and it made them kind of want a better future once the war ended. That's a kind of older view. Then there was a kind of revisionism that's been going on really since the 1980s to that view, which has found lots of ways that that kind of supposed solidarity among the British people actually more, you know, you could question it. So, for example, you know, there were lots of people who, you know, wouldn't let people use air raid shelters in their garden or, you know, there were people that cut corners and rationing, this kind of stuff. And this kind of bears on the NHS in a way. You know, there's an older view that, you know, the NHS followed on from that kind of idea of a people's war, the, the fair shares for all ethos of the Second World War. My view is that, There were, as I've mentioned, very important debates about what healthcare should look like as far back as the Edwardian period. And certainly they they really do begin to escalate in the 1920s and the 1930s in the context of unemployment, depression, this kind of these kinds of economic cycles which had effect on, on health. Another real concern was the birth rate in the UK was going down. A lot of people who set up the NHS cared about reversing that. So you, there is a there is an older debate, but what I would say is that I don't think the NHS would have taken on the form that it did had it not been for the Second World War. So for a start, it really puts those older debates 
into the centre stage. So a key document in this regard that's often invoked is the Beveridge Report in 1942, which promoted the idea of a universal welfare state, including a comprehensive national health service. Historians debate the extent to which it was popular, but thousands of people went out and bought a government report. How many people now do you know who go out and buy government reports? I know very few. So there was popular interest in these kinds of proposals that was stimulated by the war, by the reconstruction debates. I think also the war certainly allows or contributes to the Labour Party's landslide victory in 1945, which in turn allowed Aniron Bevin and the medical left to be at the helm of the national health service legislation, which in turn created these very particular dimensions of the NHS as a system, particularly the government ownership of facilities like hospitals. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Three great words. Free fries Friday. Especially when they're used in that exact order. Get a free medium fries with $1 minimum purchase. Valid one time on Fridays at participating McDonald's through 1231.24. Excludes tax must update rewards. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Staying with the idea of the creation of the NHS and the particular form it took, Neil Eads on Facebook asks, what was the path to creating a health service that was free at the point of use and were there intermediate steps? As I mentioned, the the NHS didn't spring out of the ground in 1948. There were previous forms of and examples of government intervention in the field of health way before that. So we can go back to the 19th century, we can think about public health initiatives where the government uh, gets involved in the establishment of sewers and cleaning slums, this kind of stuff. That develops, we've got national health insurance under the, the Liberals in the Edwardian era. There were even access to free services in the interwar period. So, for example, maternal health clinics uh, through local councils, vitamins, this kind of stuff. There were forms of government involvement in healthcare before. During the war, the establishment of the what was known as the Emergency Medical Service, EMS, which was a hospital system set up to prepare for the predicted casualties caused by air raids during the war in numbers that thankfully did not transpire in the hundreds of thousands. The government stepped in and coordinated the hospital system in preparation for those expected casualties. And that kind of showed to some extent uh, what was possible in coordinating medical services 
through government action. So those kinds of government involvement did exist before. In terms of stepping stones, the legislation for the NHS was brought in in 1946. It didn't come into being until 1948, the 5th of July 1948. And during that period, you see a deeply, deeply charged, heated debate between Bevan, the supporters of the NHS and the medical profession, and to some extent the public, about this healthcare system that the clock was ticking down on in terms of when it was about to come in. So there was, in that sense, it wasn't, you know, legislated and then the next day it existed. There was this period of time in which this huge debate was was raging and Bevan made concessions to the medical profession. It changed in, in slightly in, in form between 1946 and 1948. So in that way, there was a bit of a run-in to the start of the NHS in 1948. That points, I suspect, to the next question from the Posumator on Instagram, who asks, what's their opposition to the idea and from whom? Absolutely, there was opposition to the NHS. So the most famous example of this that we remember today is the opposition of the organised medical profession uh, through their uh, representative body, the British Medical Association, the BMA. It doesn't like to talk about this a lot these days, but fiercely opposed the inception of the NHS out of the view that the state should not be involved in the coordination and funding and running of healthcare. Now, of course, you know, this was not an entirely altruistic viewpoint. They had professional interest in making that argument and keeping things further outside the realm of government. They also had precedent with this. They opposed, for example, the national insurance system brought in by David Lloyd George earlier in the 20th century. And the language that is used uh, in that debate on both sides is is very, very heated. So the, the British Medical Association described, members of it described Bevan uh, as becoming a medical Fuhrer in reference to Hitler, given his authority in what would be the new NHS. Bevan, never a man to be uh, outdone in a war of words, described the BMA as a small body of politically poisoned people. So there was very much uh, opposition to it. Now, one of the things that I try and do in my book is I try and make the point that that opposition did not evaporate on the 5th of July 1948, once the NHS came into being. And I have have a chapter where I focus a lot of time on talking about a group of doctors called the Fellowship for Freedom in Medicine, who campaigned against the NHS, casting it as this kind of bureaucratic, impersonal system that would drive Britain not only to bankruptcy, but also down the road to dictatorship. And they were led by very many prominent uh, doctors, including the royal physician, Lord Thomas Jeeves Horder. So this opposition uh, was not just there at the moment of the NHS's inception. It, It did continue after it was brought into being. Andre Sito 83 on Instagram asks, how early was a national health service adopted in comparison to other countries? Andre Sito sounds like a very similar name to mine, and I can assure listeners that wasn't me planting my own questions. How early was the, the NHS established to other countries? So there were early earlier examples of comprehensive government-coordinated healthcare systems in the world. The most important example would be the Soviet Union after the Communist Revolution in 1917, which not on the same scale as the NHS, 
did get involved in the provision of healthcare to a really large extent. So, for example, the establishment of group general practice facilities, which they called polyclinics, that was one one part of the, the Soviet system. But in the democratic world, the, in terms of legislation, the honours go to New Zealand, who in their social security legislation in 1938 legislated for a government-coordinated free-at-the-point-of-use health service. But what you see there is you saw the power of the uh, medical profession and those uh, the, the terms of that legislation were never realised. So the fact is that the NHS, when it came into being in 1948, did represent the first example of a comprehensive government-coordinated health system free at the point of use in a major liberal democracy. Staying with the idea of the NHS on the international stage, I suppose, what did other nations think of the NHS? Were they, were they green with envy, this person asks? It's a good question, and I think I, I, I can answer it historically. And we should begin really with what the proponents of the NHS and its defenders and its architects thought about where the NHS sat on the international landscape. Bevan, for example, very, very frequently uh, in his speeches would refer to what the NHS meant to the world at large. And he would often describe Britain as having the moral leadership of the world in establishing the NHS. And its supporters were very, very interested in what other countries would think about the NHS. Now, an important point of context to remember here is that this is after the Second World War. This is the moment when the US and the Soviet Union have emerged as as the two world's most important political powers. Britain doesn't have a lot of money. It's traditional form of authority. The empire is beginning to fall away. So there is this looking around for ways for Britain to market itself and gain influence in the world. And the NHS, for its proponents, is very much uh, a tool that they can use to that regard. What did other countries think, though, about the NHS? Well, what the country that took the most interest in the NHS is the United States. So what you see pretty much as soon as the NHS is legislated and then brought into being is you see dozens and dozens of journalists, activists, doctors, various medical experts come over from the United States to see how this strange healthcare system is operating. And they fall, as you might imagine, their opinions of it divide on what they thought about the government. So for supporters of such a, a guarantee to healthcare in the US, there were things that could be learned from the NHS, even if it couldn't be replicated exactly. For the opponents of universal healthcare in the US, the NHS was this nightmarish vision of socialised medicine, as they described it, full of government control, crowded waiting rooms, and a lack of choice for patients. So there was this uh, wider interest among other nations in the NHS, but it didn't necessarily translate, as Bevan and some others hoped, as being this beacon of inspiration and, and dozens and dozens of other countries emulating it. Though it should be said that the NHS did inspire many people around the world. So we can point to the Chilean socialist Salvador Allende, uh, a doctor and politician, very inspired by the NHS. He mentioned it in his speeches. Later in the period, we can look at the Spanish healthcare system, which similarly has a really 
high degree of government coordination. Lots of parts of the NHS inspired that legislation as well after democratization of, of, of Spain. So yes, it didn't become the model for all other nations that Bevan might have hoped, but there are these kind of these resonances beyond Britain, I think. We've had a few questions about, I suppose, shifts in what the NHS does across time. LJ Lithgow on Instagram asks, when the NHS began, what were the most common cases it dealt with and how has that changed? I don't know if that's something that you, you can answer. Well, I can't give you exact figures on, on what it dealt with at first. Of course, much of what it dealt with is what it deals with today, the depressingly, the common cold, people giving birth, the kind of the life and death of medical care. But there were these pressure points on the NHS when it first came into being. So there was a lot of debate about patients rushing forward to access dentistry, ophthalmic services, to gain access to prescriptions, which were all free at the point of use at the start of the NHS's uh, existence. Now, there were lots of also stories about abuse of those services in the media. There's little evidence to suggest that there was this kind of widespread abuse, but it did lead to, pretty quickly after the NHS was founded, charges being introduced for prescriptions, charges being introduced for dentistry, which of course we're all familiar with now, even in the NHS. So there were these pressure points. Another way of thinking about this question is about the type of disease that the NHS was dealing with. So the NHS, when it comes into being in the late 1940s, is at this moment where the main type of disease that health systems are dealing with are acute infectious diseases. So things like tuberculosis, for example, being the main causes of mortality, a shift to uh, chronic disease, which comes with living longer and, you know, what are called quote-unquote lifestyle diseases. So things like heart conditions, cancer, this kind of stuff. The NHS, when it comes in, that shift, which is known as an epidemiological transition, is, is taking place. And what you see fairly early on in the NHS's existence is you see a lot of discussion among administrators and experts and in the media that the NHS is ill set up to deal with that that epidemiological transition towards chronic disease. And that's a debate that continues today. This may similarly be impossibly broad, but another question we've had is, how has the philosophy or ideal of free healthcare for all changed since its foundation? Is it still relevant today? And, and how do you think that's the case? I would say that the philosophy and idea of healthcare for all has contrary to what we might read in newspapers, actually only strengthened over time. This belief in the NHS has escalated over time. It wasn't the case that there was such a degree of popular support for the founding ideals of the NHS at its inception. There were certainly misconceptions, misapprehensions about what that might mean at the beginning that had to be worked through and addressed over time. And now the NHS frequently appears in opinion polls as the thing that makes British people most proud to be British. It featured in the 2012 Olympic Games opening ceremony. There are all these things that we can point to that show that there has been an upswing, I think, in support for those founding ideas. Now, of course, 
given current funding challenges, waiting lists, and so on, the public has also voiced frustration with the way that the NHS is operating. But what I would argue is that that frustration is not tantamount to desire for a different system. It is a desire to make the existing system work. So uh, I would say that those founding ideals for health rule have only increased over time. Another question about shifts over time, I suppose. How has the public view of nurses and doctors changed since the foundation of the NHS? Do their roles differ now from what they were originally set out to be? In broad terms, we can say that medicine operated in a much more hierarchical way at the start of the NHS. And that's not to say that hierarchies do not exist in medicine today. Still, of course they do. But medicine, broadly speaking, was more hierarchical at the point of the NHS's inception. So the kind of classic figure we might think about here is the matron with the starched white cap walking around the ward. And often these ideas of hierarchy in medicine and that kind of authority are romanticised, right? Like uh, a lot of debates about cleanliness in wards, you often see in newspapers, columnists who will give opinions that, oh, if only we had matrons, there wouldn't be superbugs around anymore. They kept cleanliness in order, this sort of thing. But actually, a lot of patients and a, a lot of members of the public really did not like those forms of authority, particularly as it was directed at women, at working class people, as they accessed healthcare. And what you see in the 1960s is you see the emergence of the patients' movement, as it's known, which is a form of activism which sought to empower patients in medical encounters to question the diagnosis that they were given by doctors, to speak back. Uh, in very hierarchical settings. You see the rise of second wave feminism in the 1970s, again, which ask very pointed questions about the place of women in healthcare. Um, and similarly, you see, you know, all sorts of, of, of civil rights groups around ethnicity and, and race that ask very similar questions about um, ethnic and racial minorities. So that kind of hierarchy was challenged, not completely or comprehensively, but it, there was a shift that went on there in the 1960s and the, the 1970s. Another change that we could think about is also the proximity of patients to their doctors in their everyday lives. So when we go back to the 1940s, the predominant form of general practice was the doctor who lived in the local community. They lived a few streets away from you. They worked in their own homes, usually. They went to the same pub. They went to the same shops. You would see them in your life. And once we get out the other side of the 1960s and we see the emergence of things like health centres, which groups doctors together in more modern premises, we see doctors become in some ways a little bit more distant from their patients. Now, there are some ways we might challenge, though, a view that medicine has become, or at least general practice has become completely depersonalised. Doctors and general practitioners are still in opinion polls. They still come very high in terms of who do you trust? Unsurprisingly, I'm sure to many listeners, they come higher than politicians. So there is a kind of belief in doctors and, and medical professionals that's still there, I think. But there isn't the same degree of deference to those medical practitioners that you had in the 1940s and the 1950s. And I think many people would... Uh, even medical professionals themselves would say that was a good thing. 
that idea of the NHS as being connected to and reflective of wider social tensions and trends is really interesting. Are there any other ways in which you think that it, it does that? The NHS is a really useful and important institution to think through Britain's experience of decolonization and then Britain's experience of immigration and greater racial and ethnic diversity in in the country in the latter part of the 20th century. So the service very much comes into being at the point that Britain's empire starts to fall away due to the challenges that nationalist movements in many countries are giving to British rule, uh, the costs of maintaining the empire. There is this kind of process of decolonization that's going on at the very moment that the NHS comes into being. And there are all these kinds of debates about who the NHS should serve and who it should be staffed by that are framed by that experience of decolonization. So let's think about staff. The post-war years are a period of, of great uh, labour shortage in Britain. There are not enough workers around. Britain relies to a great extent on overseas labour to make the NHS possible, both from places like Ireland. You know, a great number of nurses in the 1950s come from from Ireland and, and GPs and so on. But then also from Jamaica, from Nigeria. And if we're thinking about doctors, most overseas doctors in the UK in the 1960s and the 1970s come from chiefly India and then Pakistan. And these draw on very particular imperial legacies. So the reason that Indian doctors and Pakistani doctors can come to the UK to work in the NHS, for example, is because the British Empire in the 19th century set up medical schools in India and Pakistan that taught students in a Western biomedical tradition and gave them qualifications that were then translatable to a British context. And so those professionals in India and Pakistan seeking higher wages or a better life moved to the UK and they were able to do that because of those older imperial traditions. So there are all these ways that the NHS is deeply, deeply implicated in decolonization and the experience of immigration. One of the other ways in which the NHS is quite often in the headlines is in terms of funding. And Richard Avenel is among the people who on Facebook asked about funding. Do you think that the idea that the NHS is struggling for funding or that funding of the NHS is an issue has been a long-running characteristic of it throughout its history? This is a really important issue to think about. And I think there is something that historians can add to this discussion about NHS funding that's constantly in our newspapers and on our news bulletins. So the budget for the NHS in absolute terms has dramatically increased over its history. So in 1948, £460 million was spent on the NHS. In 2020, it was almost £160 billion. So in absolute terms, the amount of money on the NHS has gone up massively especially after the late 1980s, the 1990s, is when you see spending on healthcare go up. So if you look at the 1940s, actually Britain spends more money, say, on education than it does on healthcare. Once you get out the other side of the 1980s and into the 1990s, healthcare is the thing alongside pensions that takes up the majority of social spending. However, 
almost all industrialized nations follow this pattern of greater expenditure on healthcare at the end of the 20th century. What's interesting in thinking about this in a comparative way is that Britain has actually, compared to many of its peers, spent actually historically slightly below average on healthcare. So in terms of uh, GDP, if let's take the year 1990, for example, the UK is spending just over 4% of its gross domestic product on healthcare compared to Canada and France, who were spending over 6%. That doesn't sound like a huge difference, but if you total that into pounds, shillings and pence, it's actually a lot of money. The only time that the UK has gone up to a level comparative with its peers is under the new Labour years, where Tony Blair in the early 2000s was committed to boosting NHS spending up to the average of the OECD. What you see in 2010 is you see in the context of the austerity after the 2008 financial crash, is you see a reversal of those spending increases that new Labour gave the NHS. And this caused, uh, you know, a number of problems, including recruitment, upgrading facilities, meeting demand. So you'll often see politicians, they'll say things like, you know, they'll be asked the question about underfunding. And they'll say, we've put in X more money into the health service over these years. The question is not if you're going to put more money in, it's how much more money you're going to put in, right? All industrialized nations are putting more money into their healthcare system. It's just a question of how much more money you're putting in. And what you see over the 2010s is you see, in many ways, unprecedented restrictions in that increase, in that budget increase, which is needed for any healthcare system to keep pace with wage demands, developments in technology, drugs, this kind of stuff, and also rising demand among the population. What we expect out of healthcare in 2023 is very, very different to what people expected out of healthcare in 1953. So you need those budget increases to keep keep pace of that. But this is to say that in the COVID era, more money was spent on healthcare, and it does remain to be seen if those those budget increases that the NHS enjoyed in the 2000s, it's not impossible that they could return in the future. Is the ageing population of Britain also a factor in this? The ageing population is absolutely a factor. And and this is an important point to think with, because I think, again, what we see in our journalism and among our politicians is that they'll present the ageing population as if it's a new issue and that they are the first ones to say that we need to address this. This is simply not true. You could go back to the 1950s and you can see people looking at demographic data and you can see them saying we are becoming an ageing society, we need to adapt our healthcare system to meet these needs. There have been many different iterations of how to do that. How do you address the rise of chronic conditions like heart disease, cancers, these kinds of things. How do you pay for that? Social care is obviously a huge thing that we're thinking about at the moment. How do we pay for people, you know, at the end of their life? We might think about hospice care as well, right? That's a British form of care that emerges in the 1960s and then the model moves abroad. So these kinds of discussions about ageing society 
I would say, are not new. They've been there for a long time. And that's not to say that we shouldn't be thinking about them now. Of course we should. But I do think we should be thinking about the history of those debates and and what they can teach us for the future. Do you think there was ever a golden age of the NHS when everything was going perfectly? This is an important question because I think it frames and underpins our idea of crisis and decline right, this idea that there was a golden age for the NHS, and now we're no longer in a golden age. So therefore, history is very, very important, I think, to those present understandings of decline and crisis, these kinds of phrases that are used around the NHS. There was uh, no such thing as a golden age for the NHS. Often what you'll see, particularly from the left, is you'll see the post-war decades as presented as a golden era of the welfare state. The supposed generosity of, you know, Clement Attlee's government and their support for welfare services, the supposed golden era of harmony on the wards, respect for the matron, this kind of stuff. It's just not true. It's a fantasy. If we look at funding levels, the Attlee governments actually spent more money on imperial commitments and overseas military commitments than they did the welfare state. That's the first point to make. There were social divisions on the wards. It wasn't this thing that everyone was, you know, had respect for and were clued into. Uh, people, if you were a woman or you were a working class person or someone who wasn't white, you would be disproportionately, you might be condescended to. These kinds of social cleavages existed in those post-war years. So I suppose in that sense, if we're thinking about golden eras or like high watermarks for the NHS, it really depends what we're thinking about here. If we're thinking about funding, then the most generous point of NHS funding is under New Labour in the late 1990s and during the 2000s. That is the point when the UK, for the first time in the post-war era, comes up to the level of its international industrialised peers in terms of spending on healthcare. So it depends what lens we're looking for, really. And I would argue that, you know, it isn't necessarily in the deep, deep past that we could find the high watermarks of the NHS. It could be surprisingly recent. In 2010, I think in 2011 and maybe even 2012, the Commonwealth Foundation, which is an independent healthcare think tank based in New York, put the NHS as the number one uh, healthcare system in terms of efficiency and giving the most access to patients. So that's in the surprisingly recent past that it was achieving those kinds of metrics. And this is all to say that it's not impossible that it might achieve those kinds of metrics again in the future. And of course, is for good, very, very good reasons, there's a lot of concern and pessimism about the state of the NHS. But I think if we think historically about it, and we don't even have to go that far back in the past, we can challenge and maybe even puncture some of that sentiment. We're talking on the 75th anniversary of the NHS. How would you like people to look back at its history as we mark this moment? Well, I think in a lot of present debate about the NHS, it kind of moves between two poles. On one side, we have a sometimes quite sickly, treacly sort of view of the NHS, which is all rainbows and hearts and idea of our NHS. And on the other side, we have a deeply pessimistic view of about the NHS 
about the care it produces and an idea that it's going to collapse any day, even if even though it's lasted 75 years. So I think if we can find a way of using history to move beyond those two poles of conversation, that would be great. And I think there are many, many, if once we do, we'll actually find many, many surprising and frankly, more interesting things to talk about the history of the NHS. The fact that it wasn't universally and always celebrated at its inception. The fact that it it was deeply implicated in uh, processes of decolonization and the experience of immigration in Britain. The fact that this state institution could adapt, it could be reflexive to social change. The fact that not everything after the 1980s was privatized and slid into disrepair. Once you move beyond those kinds of ways of framing the conversation, and I think if we think about the the history of the NHS in a different way, if we bring in new voices, right, the patients, the public, different sets of experts, architects, economists, these kinds of people, as well as cultural figures, the filmmakers, the novelists, and so on, I think we'll get a wider and more interesting understanding of where the NHS fits in our lives today. That was Andrew Seaton. Andrew is the author of Our NHS, A History of Britain's Best-Loved Institution, which is out now, published by Yale University Press. And if you'd like to hear more from Andrew on why he thinks the NHS has become such a beloved institution, then check out our podcast with Andrew from the 5th of July. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green. <laughs>